So one of the highlights of our trip was our tour, tour guide, Andy, uh, who was Greek. She had tons of knowledge, uh, and she had sort of the, the portion, proportions of a thin, average-sized person who was accidentally thrown in the dryer. Like, she's a, she's a small, little Greek woman uh, with a lot of knowledge, and she was very good at her job. And, but it's funny, because since a high percentage of our fellow travelers were Dutch, which I'd like to point out, are the tallest of the white peoples, so we both point that out, I imagine to other tourists, they must have wondered whether we were tourists following a tour guide or a predator tracking their prey. <laughs> uh, but we loved her. We loved the way it, we loved her way of speaking. For instance, she had uh, the way she had this way of stretching out the name of our destination. She'd say something: "Breakfast is at seven. We will board the buses at eight, and then where will we go? The Acropolis." <laughs> so I don't think we will ever hear the word Acropolis again without thinking Acropolis. So sweet. Anyway, one of the things. Also, when it's two weeks, you spend a lot of time on the bus traveling to your destination. And that is, for a good tour guide, it's an opportunity to talk about the historical context and significance of our destination. And not to mention also build a little anticipation for when we arrive. But, you know, it, you know over that two weeks, sometimes when you get on the bus, you're just tired. Uh, you just want to nap. Or in my case, you just want to read your biography of Bo Jackson or tell Jen about some amazing thing Bo Jackson did. Uh, and so it could, be a little, it could be a little distracting. And so part of your skill set as a tour guide is knowing, you know, being able to read the room or read the bus. Be able to say, okay, how much information to give and what, you know, what are the key things and to be able to present it compellingly uh, and when to just let people take in the scenery or take a nap, or read a book. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, you know, there is a sense in which my job here is to be sort of a tour guide of a text. Not of a place, but of a text. And sometimes, I, you know, I feel like I do a pretty good job. And I, I think one of the highest compliments general pay is when I, uh, when I read a text and she says, you know, I heard that, and I'm like, what are we, what are we gonna talk about? And then, you know, I give a little tour and like, oh yeah, there is something here. This is important stuff. It's very, I find that very satisfying. Uh, there, but there are other times, eh, that's so great. Uh, and I think, as I uh, stretch this analogy a bit, I think I can sometimes be better on the bus than at the destination. What I mean is, I'll do, I, I can do a good job of establishing the significance of our tour uh, but then when we get there, I'm like, all right, everybody back on the bus. We've got to wrap this thing up. Uh, and I think last week was sort of an example of that. We had this story, and I set up the story, read the text, and, uh, and I said, all right, here's where we're going. We're going to forgiveness. And as soon as we got there, I'm like, okay, I gotta go. let's sing a song. So I uh, got us back on the bus. So I was relieved when I... Notice, of course, the text assigned to this week gives us another opportunity to talk about forgiveness, right? Uh, it is 
this story, again, it happens on Easter Sunday. The women go to the tomb early in the morning. Jesus appears to the disciples in the evening. Uh, and not surprisingly, the first thing Jesus does when he appears to them is he greets them. And he gives them the common greeting. Peace be with you. Right? That's standard fare. But he then repeats it. And it's sort of like Jesus, this is Jesus' way of saying, no, I really mean it. I'm not just saying, may you know peace. I'm saying, there is peace. All has been set right. You know, with the resurrection, we can sort of stamp Jesus' earthly ministry as mission accomplished. Jesus was this wrecking ball to the barriers of sin and death that divided the creation from the creator. That's the story of Easter. And that's an incredible story. But it's not over yet. And the next move is also incredible. It's also a jaw dropper. You know, the book of Acts describes this next move as occurring, to the, occurring during the Jewish festival of Passover, or uh, Jewish festival of Pentecost. But John illustrates it happening here on Easter. And the jaw dropping move is this As the Father sent me, I send you. The barrier is down, but how are people going to experience the reconciliation that this makes possible? Us. Yeah, it's a jaw-dropper. Us. Jesus then breathes his disciples, or breathes the Holy Spirit onto the disciples. And so the barrier is down, and now the, the, the creator is... is did you hear that? My watch started talking to me. Anyway, um, uh, it's the creator's presence crossing the divide, entering into the creation. And it is like Jesus' own living, breathing body. It is a sign of mission accomplished. But it is also the engine by which that mission will continue. By the power of the Holy Spirit, it continues in and through us. Because even as these words are spoken to the disciples, they are also spoken to us. Jesus is saying, as the Father sent me, I send you. Seriously, you, right? That's an awesome thing. Yeah, take a moment and breathe that in. Breathe in that spirit. Jesus died and rose again to bring you this gift, to bring you in, to breathe that victory in. Now, having said, all right, I send you, what he then goes on to say is what is at the heart of living into that mission. This is, it, it is about forgiveness. Now, what does that mean? What does, it mean? what does it mean to have forgiveness at the hardest thing? Well, I think too often that is understood way too narrowly. 
They say, oh, what Jesus is saying, talking about here is about individuals getting access to heaven after death. Certainly that is part of it. But, I mean, we spent six months on Genesis. So, and you'll remember that opening chapter where God creates everything according to the divine will. And behold, it's very good. Do we really think that God just sort of shrugs his shoulders about all that and say, oh, well, I'll settle for some souls. No, God wants that all back. It, it belongs to God. So God. And God wants it all back. Not just humans, but human endeavors. Not just individuals, but institutions. Not just souls, but social systems. And if you find that a stretch, I can understand why, because, man, those things are all so messed up, so broken. I'm not saying that they're included in this mission because our political, economic, and social systems are just so swell. No, they're miserable failures. I'm simply saying that it, too, all belongs to God. And their failures uh, to demonstrate God's will has put them in God's debt. God is owed for these things, for their failings. But as we emphasized last week, forgiveness is a response to that debt. You don't demand repayment of what is owed. And, and, and that is what makes, can make forgiving our efforts at forgiving so difficult. Because it often means for us that we have to live with the loss. Or it may mean you have to fill the void by that wrong done to you in some other way. Quite frankly, many addictions form because someone has had something taken from them and they're waiting for them to make it right again. And while they're waiting, they try to fill that void and they fill it with alcohol or drugs or whatever. Um because you keep waiting for something to make it right. Because the idea of just letting it go also feels horrible. Then you have to just live in the void. Well, God is not dealing with the loss of creation by sort of sitting on a bar stool, slumped over and rambling to the bartender, oh, I tell you, you should have seen it. It was all so very good. No, God does something about it. In Jesus, God fills the debt owed to God. The creator makes things right. So there is peace to you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. We are sent to be a part of the work of forgiveness. It's about seeing everyone and everything through Christ. And what does that look like? Well, honestly, I've been, so I mentioned last week, Springsteen memoir, Bruce Springsteen. Now I've been reading uh, Bono's from U2. And he is a remarkable example of that effort. I don't know if you know the story. But in high school, he and who, uh, the guitar player for U2 that was, became known as The Edge, he and the Edge attended a group called Shalom. 
And that is where they came to know and love Jesus. And they were just out of high school. I mean, they were kids when their first album was released. And they began to tour they, uh, not only Ireland and England, but they actually did a tour of the United States. And it was a big success. And they came home, and they started working on their second album and preparing for their second tour. But also, they went back to their community called Shalom. And, and the leader of that group was deeply disappointed with them. He insisted that rock and roll, what were they doing playing rock and roll when this world was so broken, when there were so many needs? It just felt selfish. The world was not crying out for rock and roll. The world was crying out for something more. And in fact, the edge was convinced he was right. And he said, I gotta leave the band. And Bono said, yeah, you know what? If you're leaving the band, I'm leaving the band. And the band was gonna break up. So they went to their tour manager. He said, look, I feel like God is calling us to leave the band. And the manager's like, oh, really? God's calling you to leave the band. Well, uh, you realize you are contractually obligated to make this next album and to do this next tour. So God's telling you to break the law. And the band's like, oh, hadn't thought about that. Okay, we're leaving the band after this next album and after this tour. Then it's over. But then, then what happened is Bono and the Edge started working on a song called Sunday, Bloody Sunday. It's a song about what had happened some years before, so 1972, so probably about 10 years earlier, where some peaceful protesters were protesting uh, uh, Britain's occupation of, of Northern Ireland, and the troops fire, started shooting the protesters. Uh, there's actually a remarkable movie that Jen and I saw called uh, Bloody Sunday. And 14 people were killed, half of whom were teenagers. It was, it was devastating. Right? And so this song is a song of outrage about that event. But it is not a song to stoke the desire for revenge. There was clearly a lot of, a lot of those in Northern Ireland wanted revenge. And there was a lot of terrorist groups at the time. But they, no, this was, not that, this was not about that. In fact, the last verse of that song goes like this. The real battle just begun to claim the victory Jesus won on Sunday, bloody Sunday, Sunday, bloody Sunday. That's where the hope lies. That song sort of gave them a new perspective on things. Um, and that song appeared on their third album because they had this realization. No, it all belongs to God. It all can be used for the ministry of reconciliation and forgiveness. Jesus died to save it all, even rock and roll. When Jesus breathed the spirit on that band, the spirit found expression in their voices and in their love of music. And so this became a mission. And in fact, Bono has done incredible things because not only with the music, but that the success has given them a significant platform. So they were um, contributed to the Good Friday Accords, which brought, has brought 
for the most part, peace between uh, uh, the United Kingdom and uh, Ireland. It had, Bono worked tirelessly in the early 2000s to get the United States to address the AIDS crisis in Africa. He became friends with Jesse Helms. Remember Jesse Helms? Um, George W. Bush. It's probably, it's probably uh, I mean, the greatest accomplishment of George W. Bush's uh, administration was what they did in Africa. I mean, how, you don't hear about AIDS in Africa. I mean, it's still an issue, but it's not nearly the issue that it was, they thought it was going to be because of that aid. <clears throat> Having said that, it's not to say that this, the pastor of Shalom was altogether wrong about rock and roll and the dangers of it. And Bono is quite uh, open about that. He still feels quite conflicted about what it does to him to have tens of thousands of people cheering him, what it does to his ego, what it can do and bring out some of his worst. Uh, and he says, you know, my whole life is this tension between you can't change the world, but you can change the world in yourself, and I can't change the world in myself. Maybe I need to change the world. He goes back and forth. So he's... He still lives in that tension. But here's this, there's a wonderful quote that in an interview he did about 15 years ago, he's, this, this is a quote. He says, it's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. So you know the notion of karma. Karma is sort of you reap what you sow, you do evil, expect evil, do bad things and build up a debt and the world will make sure you pay that debt. But what he's saying is the, the world opened up through Jesus' death and resurrection is different. And so maybe rather than thinking of Jesus just breaking down a barrier, we ought to think of Jesus as bursting a dam. Sin and death were not simply creating a boundary between us and God. They were holding something back. And the resurrection lets that loose. Grace, forgiveness, a glorious ocean of mercy. So central to being able to carry out our work is knowing that at the heart of it is grace. It's work that requires us knowing that we are forgiven and that we are called to forgive. No one, nothing is to be written off. Despite appearances, there is no such thing as God forsaken because God wants it all back. And by God's grace, God is going to get it. Now, I'm aware of how broad a statement that is. God wants it all back. And if you're like me, your mind might be going, well, I'm going to think of a couple exceptions God doesn't want back. Some things that God's willing to let go. Some things that are beyond the pale, uh, where the debt is too great. But don't let that little mental exercise keep you from seeing what is most important in this passage. Don't be like me on the Acropolis going, 
Why do all the Greeks just wear Yankee hats? Don't they know there are other baseball teams? The point is not the baseball caps, Mark. There's the Acropolis, right? So take that in. So don't, don't look at Yankee caps right now. You need to see that this text is about you and me. It's about a flood of mercy for you. The grace that covers all your debts and all the debts that are owed to you. God will not make you live with that void. Not forever. Just keep breathing in that spirit. Jesus will keep exhaling. You keep inhaling. It is not selfish to make this text about you. Making this text about you is what is going to keep you on your knees like Bono. It's what's going to give you the capacity to forgive others. It's going to give you the, the strength to fight the battle that Jesus won. To hear Jesus say, as the Father sent me, so I send you. And to see your whole life as an answer to what does that mean to be sent? Because <coughs> you, filled with the Spirit, that is exactly what the world is crying for. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.